Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. And this is a testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across from the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For the past few weeks, we have been covering John the Baptist. And last week, we looked at him today, a little bit more detail, and then next week as well. I'm going to really keep this pretty simple because John, as he is asked by these religious leaders, they ask him, who are you? And so what I want to do is just answer that question. We're going to look at who was John? And secondly, why did he baptize? Very simple. Who was John? Why did he baptize? So who was John? We know, according to John, who he was not. Uh, Verses 19 through 20 says this, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. The word Christ uh, is not Jesus' last name. It's a Greek word. It literally means anointed one, or to translate into Hebrew, it's the Messiah, so the Savior. And what John's saying is, I'm not the Savior. I'm not the Messiah, the, the one you're looking for. But one thing to note is that he could have easily claimed to be the Christ because there was so much about John that was dynamic, charismatic, and If there's one thing you do is you want to put attention to yourself. It's very easy to do so. But we're told by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, about this regarding John. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So this is a remarkable man. He's great. He is exalted amongst, he could be exalted amongst the people, but he isn't. His ministry was not to gain a following. His ministry was to exalt Jesus and exalt Jesus alone. And the fact that he's preaching and these people are his reputation is going throughout all the land. And so the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are hearing about this man and saying, we need to send some investigators to find out who is this guy? What is he all about? Can you imagine, though, how tempting it would be for John to claim this fame and appreciation for himself? I mean, no one humbles himself without a battle of the soul. Crowds are flocking to him. 
And when you get that type of notoriety, it is really hard to push that along to someone else. When you're being praised, when you're being appreciated and people are speaking of your gifts and talents, it's very difficult to actually be a person of humility. Um, it's a, a deadly danger to the soul as you're gaining no notoriety. And even if it's about talking about Jesus, actually, that's probably the one of the greatest dangers is for those who are in places of ministry or leadership in the church to actually forget about talking about Christ and rather take that upon yourself to think that it's actually all about you. Every speaker, leader, person is always tempted to believe the flattery that they are much grander than they truly are. And every time you hear of a leader inside the church and outside fall, probably it stems from the same temptation that John had, which is he's lauded, he's praised, and you start believing it. You start thinking, actually, I think that's all true about me. The temptation to believe yourself to be greater than you really are, to be the center of your world, is so real for so many of us. It's not just those in leadership, but it's for everyone. And when we do not get the attention that we rightly deserve, and that you can experience even within your own family. If someone or a group of people around you do not cater to your needs, how do you respond? Do you get angry and frustrated with them? Do you think, well, I'm the parent. My children should do whatever I say. And when that doesn't happen is our instinct to pout and to revert to being a child as well. We fall into self-pity because so easily we feel neglected. You know, John, he refuses to buy into this lie. And very similar to Jesus turning away Satan's temptation to leave behind God's plan, so too John immediately turns aside any attempt for personal grandness. And this is something that all of us will or have experienced this concept of temptation. And when that temptation comes, there has to be an immediate turning aside. It cannot linger. It cannot fester. It has to be immediate or else it takes root. And it takes root very quickly. You can't let a look linger for even a second because that one look goes down the dark road of lust. A thought that says, you know, I'm actually pretty good. Actually, you start believing even the small little words of affirmation. Suddenly it becomes a part of your identity and who you are. And then when someone doesn't give you that word, it feels as though that a part of you has been ripped away. We start really believing that this is who I am. And that really is the beginning of the fall getting angry or irritated because people are not giving you the respect that you deserve. And again, that crosses all areas of life. Once we buy into this idea that respect is something that we are entitled to and due to our status, what we've achieved, and when we don't receive it, that anger that wells up when that doesn't happen, it's because we have not immediately dealt with that temptation. 
it is so easy to sink into that. And when that happens, we start going down a very, very dark path. John, when we look at him, we see someone who, if anyone is entitled to that type of affirmation and recognition, it was John the Baptist. Again, Jesus said he is the greatest born of all women. And that essentially means everybody. And yet, despite the fact that he is this, this, definitely refuses to say, I am the Christ, because he surely was tempted. Because if Jesus was tempted in every way and yet without sin, then surely John the Baptist can easily be tempted by such things. So one thing we do know about John is that he is not the Savior. He is not the Christ. So what do we know about John the Baptist? Verse 23, John says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Humility does not mean quiet. Humility is not a personality trait. You don't gain humility by just being reserved or by having a soft voice. If that were the case, then John would definitely not be a humble person because he's a voice crying out, shouting, screaming, and he wants to be heard. You don't act like that without actually desiring for people to respond to it. He also is a witness. He's a witness not to himself, but to someone else, ultimately to Christ. And rather than living in luxury in his home, in comfort, we find that he's living in the wilderness. Why the wilderness? When you read the Bible, you know that the wilderness has a very specific role, a theme, a pattern. We see this in Israel's uh, freedom from, the, uh, from Egypt, where they were freed from slavery, but for 40 years, they're roaming the deserts, the wilderness. And it's an incredibly dark, difficult place. It's so hard to navigate that place. In fact, as you know the story, many people died in that process. And so why did they go into a place of wilderness? Because they refused to trust God. You know, the straight line from Egypt to Canaan would not have taken 40 years. Walk. Maybe maybe a couple of years, but not 40. But their inability to trust God in that place was going to be a place of judgment, sin, repentance. And that's really significant to understanding who is John and what is his purpose? What is his role? They were, throughout Israel's life, that wilderness would come again and again. They would be exiled, in a sense, into the wilderness after they rejected God, and so they'd be brought to Babylon in the wilderness. They would come back from Babylon. And then when the temple's all destroyed, there would be another wilderness. So that wilderness theme in the Bible is always meant to show that, one, people do not trust God. Two, God has to intervene into their life to show them that they need to change. There has to be a change to their life. And John's point to them is very similarly the message that Isaiah said, this is what would be preached. Make straight the way of the Lord. Uh, 
Isaac Watts wrote a Christmas hymn called Joy to the World. Many of you know it. And he says, prepare him room. Make straight. Open your heart. Make the road straight for him. So if a king enters into a sort of a path and he's on a horse, heralds go before him and they shout, make way for the king, make way for the king. And all the people who are standing, they stand on the side of the road and they sort of yield in order for the king to cross. And John is this messenger. He's telling the people who do not notice him, make straight paths, make way for him, take notice, look at him. Because the instinct is if you don't have a herald coming, they just go about doing what they want to do. We have to heed this today because we're prone to do exactly the same thing. I mean, how many of us remember being locked down during COVID when it first happened? When that first happened, that first day, and I remember that first day, there was a lot of confusion, not knowing what would take place. But the fruits of that time were many. For example, some things that we forgot is, and we've just sort of reverted back to the way that things were, right? Where you're driving everybody from place to place. You know, there's this competition, this, all the worry, worries and busyness of life has just flooded back. But during that time, I had a couple of college-age kids, and they came back home, and so we'd take walks as a family, and you just sort of, although for them, that wasn't the greatest of times because they missed out on their, like a year of their college life. But for me and my wife, we loved it. You know, how many of us love that time to some extent? To have that time and to actually spend life together as a family once again, it's really precious. But now it's all gone. <laughs> it's all, it is just back to the way that things were. And we have quickly forgotten haven't we? And so when John is saying, prepare the way of the Lord, he's telling us, make way. Your life is full of so many things, so much busyness, so many distractions. And we need to prepare the way, make way. For those of you who are going on the retreat in um, the end of November, really excited that you're going to join us together in this. The theme it comes from Jeremiah, but it's this idea of return to me. It's the same idea because we are so full of life, work, family, all sorts of worries and concerns, our health issues. We have extended family. We have all of these competitions, school, academics, how many distractions. And so this same word that John is giving, he's giving not just to those whom he's speaking to, but to us as well. Make way for the Lord. Prepare your way. And sometimes we just need to stop. We do this every Sunday, but every Sunday it's, what, an hour and a half, two hours? If it's like two and a half hours or three hours, you say, whoa, wait a second. That's a little bit too long. And it, it comes into the middle of the week, and then we go back to the way that it was. Maybe you might spend three minutes, actually 30 seconds, praying three times a day before breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Maybe if you spend time with the Lord in devotions, maybe it's another half hour, but then it goes back to the way that it was. It, we, we forget, it's just constant. The Pharisees, they were in this practice and idea that 
if you do certain things, that's all God required of you. So all you needed to do is not work on the Sabbath. And working on the Sabbath had its own definition. Actually, for Jews today, if you were to go to, uh, uh, like a, to Israel or to different parts of the world, and sometimes even areas where there are a high Jewish population, the elevators in those places will stop on every floor on the Sabbath. And the reason is because to press a button is work. And you cannot press that button. So they actually force every elevator to stop on every floor or else it's work. And then you say, but isn't walking in work? And they say, no, it's not. And they have all these rules. As long as you abide by the rules, then everything is good. But John is here saying, that's not true. We're full of so much. And unless we recognize that we have to set aside our hearts, not our time, not our priorities, but actually our hearts. And the realization is that once you set aside your heart, everything else will be taken care of. So this is who John was. He was someone who was going to prepare the way of the Lord. And he was a herald waiting for the Christ to come. The second question that we're going to answer is, why did he baptize? Why did he baptize people? His baptism was a baptism, as he says, of water. And water has a real significance in the Bible. It's what you would imagine it being. It cleans people. It's, it, it's a cleaning agent. And the assumption is that something is dirty, and so therefore water cleanses you. So again, if you go to Israel, there are these ritual baths everywhere, especially in front of the temple. And dirtiness was the dirtiness of your soul. And so you would go into this bath, and it, when they say bath, it's basically like a little pool. And you sometimes they have these uh, stairways where you, there's stairway down and stairway up, and there's a railing in the middle. And one thing you do not do is you touch the person coming up because if they happen to touch a person going down, they have to go back down again because they've gotten dirty from that. They've gotten polluted. Water has a very specific purpose. Baptism has a specific purpose. It's meant to show that sin is a reality. In John chapter 1, verse 26, John says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We'll talk about the Holy Spirit's work, which is he's the person who actually does the cleansing. But the water was intended to show that we actually are sinners. We have to repent. And the repentance is real, but it only shows you that we're sinners. It doesn't actually save anyone. So we need the Holy Spirit, as we'll see next week, in order to actually experience salvation. But baptism has a place. I want to take a, a little bit of an aside, and I actually didn't do this in the first service, but I want to do it here, is to talk about the importance of baptism itself. And for those of you who are considering baptism, we are holding one at the retreat. And so I'm excited for that. 
Some of you have never been baptized, but you say, I believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. If you say, I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I hope you would be like the Ethiopian eunuch who, after hearing about his own sinfulness and hearing Isaiah 53 spoken to him and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he said to Philip, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized now? Like There wasn't a, well, I don't know if I should be baptized. It's a little awkward in front of a lot of people to do this. Or, you know, I baptism, there's a lot to wait. No, it's, if I'm a Christian, I should be baptized. Right? Because the idea of what John the Baptist is saying is that water, it's meant to show you're a sinner, your need for Christ, your need for salvation. It doesn't save you, but it does show you your need. And so if you are a believer of Christ and you actually see the depth of your sinfulness, and it's, again, it doesn't mean that you are perfect, you're sinless. Actually, if you said, I'm sinless, therefore I should be baptized, then you shouldn't be baptized. But if you actually say, I need a savior, and my savior is Jesus Christ, then baptism is exactly for you. And so therefore you should say, I want to be baptized. I desire it. And I will do whatever it takes. And so if it's, hey, come and talk to Thomas about it. And you say, I don't want to talk to Thomas about it. It's a little awkward. And I, Well, then my question is, are you saved? If you're feeling so awkward that you don't want to talk to Thomas, then yeah, there, there, maybe there's more than meets the eye there. Because if, if you're actually saved, you'll be like the Ethiopian eunuch and say, I want to be baptized. I got to be baptized. What do I need to do? I'll do anything. Let me be baptized. So if you're a youth, for example, and you say, I believe in Jesus, and you say, but I don't want to talk. To, I don't want to give my testimony. Do I really need to do that? I don't want to talk to Thomas. It's really awkward because... You know, talking to Thomas may be a little awkward. It's not about Thomas. Then I ask the question, brother, sister, are you saved? Because if you're, if you're saved, that, that's, not, that's a very small obstacle. That's nothing. John is preaching and he's saying, if you are a believer of Christ or if you see your sins, repent and be baptized. So I really want to encourage you to do that. Um, let's go back. John reverts back to his main point, um, his main purpose, where he says, the one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Verse 27. John's baptism is meant again to show our need for a savior that we, that is only found in Christ. And if you look at John's language, he goes one step further in describing his relationship to Jesus. He talks about the feet. You know, feet in Jesus' day and John's day was considered to be the most disgusting part of your body. I mean, it's, it's actually not so great today. Unless you are a baby, <laughs> baby feet are really cute. You know why? Because they have not stepped on the ground yet. <laughs> and so they're cute. But once you start walking and wearing shoes, oh boy, it. it not, not good things. Uh, you know, as, as someone who enjoys hiking, I've hiked miles, right? And sometimes in the dirt and in mud and sometimes... <laughs>
learned. I've stepped in those. Come back. It's pretty disgusting. It's gross. Well, in Jesus' day, in John's day, you wore sandals all day. And you stepped in things. And there was dirt everywhere. And so when you walk into a house, and if the house was owned by someone of even our status, generally the person who would clean your feet would be a slave. And so that person washed feet, took off the sandals, untied the straps, and then started washing the feet. This says a lot about the relationship between John and Jesus. Now let's go back again and think about John. John, as I said last week, he's the older cousin. He also, his dad was not a carpenter. His dad was Zechariah the priest. So from a lineage perspective, he was that much higher ranked in society. Um, he had that over Jesus. As well as his ministry started first, he had the crowds. People were coming to him. I think if we were experiencing that, there would be some resistance in our hearts to want to pass that along to someone else. If you've experienced this perhaps at work or in school, and you find a classmate or a coworker who has exactly the same degrees and they have the same tasks that you do, it's hard not to feel competitive to some extent. And the last thing you probably want to do is to take a lesser role so that your coworker or a classmate will actually increase in stature or in notoriety, in advancement. So that's what we have in the relationship between John and Jesus. And yet, this temptation that is there did not overcome him. And you know what the temptation probably was? The temptation of envy. It's a, a dreadful, dreadful darkness that, if we're honest with ourselves, is somewhat in our hearts. And the envy comes about in two ways. Either we boast about ourselves to lift ourselves above others because we want to prove that we're actually better, or we talk ill of someone else to lessen their notoriety, their identity, so that we feel better about ourselves. It's sort of the idea of what envy is like. Envy always acts to the betterment of the self. D.A. Carson is a biblical theologian. He's very, actually, in Christian circles, he's very well known. He's, he and Tim Keller started Gospel Coalition, if you know anything about that. And he uh, had a, he was a pastor's kid. His uh, dad was a pastor of a very small church in Canada, and he pastored there for about 40 years. It was always a small church. And amongst Christians, he was a nobody, his dad. No one knew him. But D.A. Carson wrote a book about him, and this book is all about the significance of this man who did nothing of note for the Christian world, and yet God used him in very different ways. And through that model, he had this philosophy, D.A. Carson, of however small or big the church was, if they asked him to speak, he would consider doing it. And I, I know this personally because he's spoken at my friend's church that had very few people at that church. And you have to understand, most of the Christian world operates very similarly to the non-Christian world, which is 
I only have so much time. So if I'm going to speak and I'm very famous or noted, I will speak to a church of over a thousand people and that's it. I don't have enough time for, quote, the little people. So for someone like this to speak in those type of contexts, it does say a lot about his view of what it means to be successful. Are we different, perhaps? Do we applaud the success of others because we hear about their skills and talents that are very successful in the world? And frankly, it's very tempting to do that, to think, okay, if a child goes to a particular type of school, that's the person to be praised versus another. If a certain type of career path, that's the person to be praised than another. And I'm not going to just go into specific schools or careers or whatever, but I think you understand what I'm saying is that we have fallen into the same idea of success, uh, value, identity, status, stature, all based on things that do not ultimately satisfy. So the danger is that envy is fool's gold. It makes us think that if we achieve certain status, then suddenly all of our joys will be there and our desires will be satisfied. We'll get satisfaction for our life. And it's such a lie. Proverbs tells us how much of a lie it is. Proverbs 14.30, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. A heart of peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. To fight envy, it's not about trying to humble yourself. If you, have, if you find that you're looking out and being covetous about other people's success, it won't go away by you saying, I'm not going to envy. I'm going to be more humble. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, think about it this way. I remember when... Um, I was in Africa, and we were in Swaziland, and there was this really poor mother and her children, no father, uh, and they were just, and there was about 10 children. And their access to water was down this huge mountain. I, it was remarkable that this woman, who was sick, would have to carry these gigantic jugs of water, bring it all the way back, go down the mountain, fill up go all the way back. So we said, so a few of us guys, we said, we'll, we'll do this for you. We got to the down part of the mountain and then got to this little, little patch of water. And the worst part of it all is this patch of water was absolutely stagnant water. So if you can imagine, the water looked disgusting. And you think, is this her only water source? Well, we actually did take the water and bring it up, and it was so heavy. We're thinking, how does this woman do this? Like, we, the four guys were struggling bringing this water up, let alone this woman doing it by herself. But the water, I was just thinking about it, is if you were to take some, uh, like a spoon or something, or and try to, a little cup, and try to get all the stagnant part of it out, you wouldn't be able to do it. Because the amount of effort it takes to bring out all of the impurities, it would be replenished by all the materials that were around it. So there would be no way to clean that water. Now, imagine though, there was a, just a huge river of clean water being sourced into that stagnant water. 
as that river is pouring into that stagnant water, it would change the properties of that water. No longer filled with all sorts of impurities and filth and junk, it would become clean. It would require, though, a gigantic flow of clean water to make that one body of water clean. I think for so many of us, when we think of sin, no matter the sin, lust, envy, boastfulness, and you say to yourself, I'm going to try not sinning. I'm going to try not to do this. I'm not going to be boastful anymore. I'm not going to lust anymore. I'm not going to be angry anymore. What we're basically doing is we're taking a cup and we're trying to take the stagnant water and pour it out, but all the impurities are coming in anyway, and it just stays. So is it any wonder why we get so frustrated and we say, oh, I guess this Christian stuff doesn't work. Jesus doesn't work. But you see, you look at John, and you see something very different. His approach to defeating sin and to warding off temptation is not to actually try to get rid of the impurities. Baptism doesn't get rid of anything. But something more. When he says that he is unworthy to untie the sandals, the person who does this is a slave. A slave unties sandals. And John is saying, I'm unworthy to untie the sandals of the Savior. So that means John is saying, I'm lower than a slave. So how do you, how do you overcome all this? The only way is that someone had to go even lower than that. And this someone is named Jesus. We see this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul writes this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not grasp, and here's the most important part, but emptied himself by taking the form of, you know, in the ESV it says servant, but it's actually the Greek word for slave. And John MacArthur does a great, he wrote a book called Doulas, Slave, and his whole argument is that so many times whenever you see the word servant, we should translate it as slave. And I agree with him here. So by, by emptying himself, by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what John is saying is that you have the slave who unties the sandal. John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to untie the sandal of Jesus. And then Paul is saying that actually Jesus even goes lower than John. Because you know who, who Paul is saying Jesus is? He's criminal. Or he's at least dying a criminal's death. He's, he's uh, taking on the cross. And not just that, the cross to a Jew was a curse. A curse, I, I really cannot stand it when people take the name of Jesus in vain. But you know, how often does that happen at work, at school? All the time, right? In movies, everywhere. But do you know that Jesus voluntarily took on the curse? Like It's almost as if he's saying, I will be that curse word so that you and me 
and John can be freed from the power of sin. And so that it takes the waterfall, the the rushing rivers of clean water to purify that which is dirty. And there is no way that our, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm not going to lust anymore. It just doesn't work. I think anyone who's been a Christian long enough knows how that just fails time and time again. No, you have to look to Christ. He is the only source by which we have hope. What that looks like practically is that when I'm hurt by someone, it's not going to be, I have to forgive him. I have to forgive him. It has to be, I am forgiven. As whatever that person has done against me, I've done worse to Christ. And yet Jesus still pours out his grace upon me. He still loves me. He still became a curse for me. He still went lower than a slave for me. And that then gives me this inherent desire to say, I'm going to forgive. If Jesus can do that for me, then surely I can do that. That is this constant waterfall of God's grace. Baptism says, I need Jesus. I can't, I cannot on my own worship Christ. I cannot defeat sin. It's just impossible. But as we'll see next week, the Holy Spirit empowers us to remember the grace of God over and over again. So John said he's not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals as Jesus' slave. Paul says Jesus went even lower than that by becoming a slave, not just a slave, but a curse for us. Jesus rescues us by going to the lowest of depths so that you might rejoice with him in the highest of heights. That's why John never wavers, and that's why you too. When we go to this table, every time, it's a reminder for us of this truth. It's what we need most to live this life of faith. Enjoy. To be a Christian is to be joyous. It's to live in faith. It's to persevere to the end. It's to trust him. Because Jesus Christ humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. Let's pray together. Father, I, I know for myself how hard it is to defeat sin. My own self-centeredness, self-pitying ways. But there's not enough willpower in me to overcome it. And I believe the same for every person who is before me. We just can't do it by our own strength and our willpower. We tried, failed so many times but we're so thankful for your son that he not only took on the form of a slave, but he took on the curse of the cross. Jesus, that you became a curse for us when you hung on that tree. And so that we, you would do away with our sin once and for all. When we come to this table, O Lord, we come humbled by that truth. And it is the power upon which we live by faith. Thank you, Father, for bringing us near through your son, Jesus, for mediating that which we could never do by our own efforts. And so, Lord, may we delight in this communion. For those who have turned to Christ, may they delight 
in being baptized and seeing the glory of the gospel in that act that as a reflection of what is truly happening in our hearts, that in the same way communion does, that we will delight in who you are and experience the glorious work of your son every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.